Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and over the next half hour, we're going to be going in-depth into three questions we've been hearing from international educators this week. It's April 21st, 2021, and today, uh, like every other Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we come to you live to go uh, and cover some content that we've been seeing, some trends developing over the course of the last few weeks and months, and have been revealed in news stories, and we'll, we'll share how some of those news stories will impact potentially what you do, and certainly are impacting the larger world of international education. So as always, a uh, special shout out to those watching live here on Facebook. It's always a pleasure to be uh, connecting with you uh, in person, live uh, on, uh, on, on Facebook. But also, those who don't have the time, I get it, uh, who watch on repeat on YouTube channel for SMIE Consulting or on the Facebook page, and those that are making downloading our podcast of the Midweek Roundup a regular part of their weekly listening. So thanks for making us a part of your journey. Uh, in your work in international education. So as always, we start with uh, the SMIE Consulting, all the SMIE news fit to share. Our weekly newsletter comes out on Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and we uh, that comes to your inbox free of charge. Uh, you can subscribe uh, at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. I'm also going to be uploading the link to this week's edition where all the news stories we'll be talking about today uh, are located, and you can subscribe that way as well as after you get a chance to see if the newsletter is worth your time. Hopefully it is, as well as the roundup here. So the link will be in the Facebook uh, page comments section for this uh, midweek roundup, so be sure to check that out if you're looking for the links to any of these stories. Uh, but we'll jump right in with the first question of the week, and that is, why are Indian undergraduate applications up to the United States? So we've, uh, for those who've been uh, tracking the Midweek Roundup for the last couple of years, we've talked at length uh, how uh, the, much like, uh, it, much like China was tw uh, 15 years ago when uh, the undergraduate market was just starting to pick up uh, in China with a rising middle class there, uh, we're seeing similar trends uh, over the last few years developing in India with the rising middle class. And like China, that had been uh, primarily a grad market for U.S. institutions up until the early 2000s. Uh, India has been that for, for U.S. institutions as well, primarily grad. Uh, but the undergrad market has been building. There have been numerous tour groups that go exclusively to India over the last uh, five to ten years and have been developing relationships with secondary schools, have been encouraging uh, them to start thinking about university options right after they finish their standard 12s in India and are looking to um, get a jump start on their bachelor's degree education by uh, pursuing that in the United States and potentially opening up uh, doors to uh, quicker immigration paths, future, uh, future employment, uh, graduate programs, whatever it might be. So there's a lot of value uh, and a lot of foundation work that has been built over the last a uh, few years uh, by a lot of these tour groups, a lot of the India-specific agencies by our the team, Education USA teams on the ground, who do develop this uh, interest in U.S. as a undergraduate destination market too. And we've seen growth. It's been slow and steady, and it, it's still overwhelmingly a grad market. Uh, but we've seen uh, increases over the last few years with undergrad enrollees through Open Doors from India, and that has been one of the few bright spots recently on the undergrad side uh, that after we're seeing the declines in newly admitted students over the last four years. 
Now, the numbers, uh, and this is actually in a, uh, where we're pulling this from, we've been reporting on the Common App numbers for uh, a couple weeks now, uh, but this is the uh, first time I've seen a Times of India story specifically about Indian applications up uh, to U.S. universities 30 percent this year. Uh, and that is, uh, it's, it's more specific because it's common app, app, common app numbers that are reflected here. And obviously for undergraduate studies, that is uh, a prime tool for uh, international students to use to reach a, a number of different institutions using the same template. Uh, not quite a UCAS like they have in the UK, but certainly an easier path to applying to multiple schools. Uh, obviously, there are individual essays and other requirements that uh, students still need to fulfill, but it's, it's certainly better than uh, using 10 different international applications uh, from, for 10 different schools. So uh, what is driving that, uh, that increase in growth? Uh, it's, as I said, there's, there are multiple reasons, but the, uh, the, the, what, what we've seen uh, is a reflection, the increases uh, to, the, to the U.S. from India. Uh, uh, the article says they've risen at least, undergraduate applications to the U.S. have risen at least 30 percent uh, from India. Uh, so that um, uh, overall data is up, of common app data is up uh, from applicants living outside the U.S. is up 10 percent year on year, but 30 percent are uh, up uh, from India uh, in the common app numbers. Uh, we've talked about how China is down in common app usage, 18% this year, but India being up is a, a real interesting uh, development. And uh, the CEO of Common App, Jenny Rickard, uh, has indicated, and I'm quoting here, the shift to test optional requirements in university admissions has driven a large increase in applications as more students apply to universities that would otherwise not have applied to. Uh, for students applying for fall 2021 undergraduate entry, the number of applications submitted through Common App has increased, but not at the same level as the number of applicants, which suggests that applicants are applying to more schools. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, that's actually not a quote from uh, Jenny Rickard. Uh, it's actually from George Joseph, Managing Director of U.S.-based Gion Global Advisors. So there's strong interest in uh, that in top schools, uh, schools that, and we've talked about this phenomenon with t test optional over the last few weeks as well, uh, that being uh, institutions that have gone test optional due to the pandemic, uh, if they're truly test optional, and there's some debates as to who is and who isn't, but uh, what we do see is that it opens doors uh, to students that perhaps are not the best test takers, uh, might be have, have strong English as if they're international students, uh, but never did well because the SAT, frankly, ACT are not tests designed for international students who've learned probably British English, not American English, in a U.S. high school in the United States. So uh, for many of these students uh, where test scores had would have previously preempted them from even bothering applying to some of the more selective institutions in the U.S., uh, which are reflected in a lot of the Common App uh, member institutions, you see that they see an, an opportunity to, hey, this is my chance. I might be one of the 3%, 4%, 5% that are admitted to that institution this year because, of my, because I'm test optional. Whereas I have great grades and other extracurriculars perhaps, but don't have uh, the test scores to, that would normally match uh, the profile of an admitted student to the, these most selective institutions. So uh, counselors uh, in India are also seeing a reasonable uptick, uh, not just in numbers uh, 
per applicant, uh, an Indian applicant to U.S. schools, but also seen more volume in terms of student interest in U.S. institutions. So there's also, um, also comp because of the, the deferment, a lot of the deferments that happen to these selective schools in conversation uh, with a number of selective institutions that were part of an event I put on yesterday for uh, counselors at uh, UWC schools overseas and their Davis partner colleagues on the U.S. side. Uh, in individual conversations, a number of them said that uh, their incoming classes this year are so much more competitive because uh, in terms of who they're uh, admitting because you have three potential groups that are, 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 are coming in. Uh, one we've talked about, and that's those that deferred enrollment when they were admitted for 2020. Uh, entry uh, that have deferred for a year, maybe taken a gap year. There are those that have started online that will be coming, uh, maybe haven't reached second year status yet, and then the whole class of, of applicants for 2021, which is, uh, when you think about it, you have expanded application numbers. Uh, you have, uh, because of the test optional thing, you have a larger cohort that, of admitted students uh, competing for the, roughly the same amount of spots each year, admitted students from last year plus whatever uh, institutions admit this year that are competing for those enroll, enrolling student spots. And that is uh, kind of that pent-up demand we we've been talking about for months uh, related to the pandemic. And India certainly is one of these things, uh, one of these places that uh, when there's, they see an opportunity, they, they go for it. Uh, whether that's changes in uh, 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 huge spikes in numbers to the UK in the last year or two because of the reintroduction of post-study work visas, whether it now is the US uh, because uh, test optional, they, 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 they act quickly. It's a market that is uh, very dynamic, constantly shifting in terms of which way the wind blows, in terms of who's, which country destination has the most uh, the best options potentially for them uh, for, for post-study work as well as admissions. So I think this is, uh, India is one of those countries that uh, probably the most, uh, certainly of the largest sending countries uh, globally, uh, their students are probably the most destination agnostic in terms of where they want to go. Or uh, an article last week we talked about being geography agnostic uh, in terms of where they're looking and what, where they're willing to look for uh, post-study, or for, for, for higher education options. So I think India is a, is a real, real bellwether uh, for, I think, other countries that are, as they develop, uh, as they look for other options, as uh, where things might be going and shifting uh, destination markets, is, it's happening, it's real. Uh, currently, uh, and we'll talk more about Australia at the end of the program, today, but you look at other countries that are, st are still closed to international students either coming for the first time or returning uh, for the, to finish their studies are still closed to, largely to those groups. So it has a, a long, it can have a long-term impact in terms of where student interest will go, uh, where the openings are. Uh, and that's certainly uh, in terms of uh, the UK, they had a real boon in the fall in terms of new student entry uh, because they could get in to the country. Uh, there were still, uh, because of their third party visa processing pieces, because of the promises institutions made about study options, and, and that we've talked uh, in the past about how some of those promises were not delivered on and uh, maybe were uh, empty promises and certainly 
Uh, we were promised under-delivered on the part of US inst uh, UK institutions in terms of face-to-face -face education. Uh, that may have a backlash in the next year, who knows, um, in terms of uh, students having to, international students having to pay uh, full freight when uh, they're living on campus but not able to take classes uh, in person. So there's a lot of other issues involved here, but that can sway you know, destinations that students are becoming much more geographically flexible in terms of where they end up. So India, I think, is, a, is an excellent bellwether for that. At least for the United States, we're in a position because of going test optional, because uh, we're seeing as rebounding a new administration, all the geopolitical factors involved there. Uh, there's much more uh, in, encouraging news uh, coming perhaps out of the U.S. that is, is leading to this uh, uh, more uh, more intense uh, interest in the U.S. as a destination market again. So India is going to be a bellwether, I think, for a number of years and potentially uh, uh, much well, many more students from the subcontinent will be uh, coming to the U.S. as a result. And I think that has uh, long-term implications, obviously, for how we, how we conduct ourselves internationally uh, on the admissions circuit. So we'll keep an eye on India, definitely. Next up, uh, this is an art article out of ICEF Monitor. It uh, came out on the 7th, but I just, got a, just posted it in our newsletter last week. And I, uh, and I for, for this week, excuse me. And I focus on this because it really speaks to me uh, and a lot of what my, my thoughts have as they've developed over the last few years in terms of international student recruitment and uh, best practices. Uh, in uh, certainly in this current age of COVID, uh, we're we're dealing with a situation uh, where uh, there's more uncertainty, there's uh, more uh, fears that are out there in the marketplace among students, amongst parents, uh, and that w there's a great need for concrete steps that institutions take to better connect with these students and to allay fears and to answer questions and to be upfront about where they are with things uh, and how they how they are planning to uh, change uh, their ways of doing things to or accommodate uh, international students that are really uh, facing a lot of uncertainty a lot of doubt and what i think this this article really speaks to is uh, the importance of personalization in terms of your messaging to uh, international students. And uh, as part of my six Ps on strategic international enrollment management that uh, I've developed, uh, it's, uh, I'm implementing that on a couple different university campuses in the next, uh, next year, uh, maybe more, uh, that uh, focus on, uh, really fo focus on having a process uh, and purposefully picking people as your overall uh, strategy develops in that within personalization, that's the fifth uh, P of the six P series. Uh, personalization means uh, you have to be reaching students where they are uh, in terms of who they are, uh, uh, what language they speak, uh, that are, you are, are answering questions that are relevant to who they are as a student that uh, whether they're a career-minded student or one that is looking for the best uh, options, uh, best quality, lowest price options that they can, they can get, uh, that, uh, that you have student personas developed that can help speak to those concerns of the individual students. That can be done on a number of different levels from faculty 
uh, from current students who are international students who can talk to and maybe share similar backgrounds to the students that you're going after. Uh, it can be a personalizing your communication flow to major, to country, to uh, potential interest, student interests outside of the classroom. Uh, that really takes um, into account where the, uh, trying to model uh, your messaging onto what that student's uh, where they're coming from, what their background is, to, and what their needs are, and anticipating some of the concerns that they have. And the more you're doing that in your communication and making your communication plan much more sophisticated rather than here's what every international student gets, if you're even at that stage, that's a, that's a step up in some colleges I, I know that it's whatever the domestic students get, that's what their international students get, even though many of those messages are completely irrelevant uh, for international audiences uh, and that, and, and, or have misleading information for international audiences. So there's a lot of value in when, you, when you're honing your communication plans to have content that is personalized, uh, that ha where you're, you're telling your university story through your students, that you're, uh, you have these personas developed that really uh, encapsulate what message you want all prospective students to know about your institution and go deeper to the specific needs of certain types of students that have uh, concerns over housing or concerns over academic progress of post-study work options of uh, cost of safety and those kinds of things that may be very important to them. It's, it's making attempts to meet them where they are uh, and anticipate the kinds of concerns that they will have. So very important piece uh, from ICEF and it really goes in depth into the persona piece uh, where you make an effort to address all their practical questions about, um, about health and safety protocols, about the visa process. Uh, we, we're still talking about that, what, about what consulates are going to be open. Uh, most are open for emergency student visa appointments only, uh, if they, and others maybe 50-55% are fully open, uh, again, where you can schedule appointments. But it's, it, it's really important to walk students through that process because there's a lot of unanswered questions. And a lot of, if, not, if, if it's undergraduate students, you also need to be talking to their parents because parents will have those concerns too. And they're oftentimes amplified uh, at, from what maybe the student's willing to share. So uh, having your current students involved in the process to have multilingual content, locally hosted content on your site that addresses their needs and their concerns uh, is, is so valuable. And when you think about the, everything that's happened to the way your campus does, does things in the last year since the pandemic first took hold, uh, your health and safety protocols on campus as it relates to masking, uh, COVID testing, uh, social distancing on campus. What, thinking through these things as they impact how you do what you do in international admissions, just in, uh, in your day, daily jobs on campus. Many of you are not back on your campuses. You're still doing remote work. Uh, even international student advisors are doing remote advising appointments, uh, as well as the admission staff. Um, there may be uh, skeleton crews that are on campus, or you take a rotating basis every couple of weeks. So that's a, that has an impact on, on what you do, obviously, but it's also something that your future students want to know about in terms of the process. Uh, and have uh, have assurances as to what life will be like. Because ultimately, whether we're in a pandemic or not, 
Students want to know what it's going to be like for them to be a student on your campus. Uh, and that is ultimately the picture you need to paint for students through your messaging. Uh, and on all sorts of different levels, whether it's current student, whether it's faculty members, whether it's your uh, admissions office, whether it's uh, senior administrators, alumni, whatever, they need to be able to paint that picture effectively for your prospective audiences and address their practical questions. And this year, more than that, most, you have these practical questions that you've never had before. Uh, will I be required to get a vaccine? Uh, there, there are other vaccinations that your, your school might require, but will I need to have a COVID vaccine before I come? What if it's not a US approved uh, vaccine? What am I supposed to do? Will I need to quarantine for a couple of weeks even if I have a vaccine? Uh, that's something that we really need to think through, and hopefully you're already, your administration is already addressing these. We've seen more colleges come out with, uh, uh, there's now a list of over 50 colleges in the U.S. that are going to require vaccinations. And a very small percentage of those, I think, have actually thought through clearly what, that what those procedures will be for international students. And we'll talk more about that in, in the months to come. Uh, leading up to uh, the fall semester starting about what are some of the best practices out there in terms of messaging on the for international audiences on the vaccine issue, which can get uh, make an institution look very foolish if they're saying you have to have a U.S. approved visa or vaccine, but only uh, in terms of the access to Pfizer and Moderna visas, uh, vaccines outside of the United States is limited. So uh, what if they're coming from China where those are, are approved vaccines aren't being offered, uh, but there are the ones that maybe we haven't approved here in the U.S., the Sinovac vaccine, for example, that what are those students going to do? Will they have to take a sec have a second one? And is that medically efficable? Uh, is it medically uh, practical? There certainly haven't been studies on that done yet. So uh, there's there's a trust of having to trust science that isn't developed yet on on, on some of those things is, is is posing questions for institutions that I think are going to potentially lead to some uncertainty questions certainly from international audiences and doubt as to what whether or not they are making the right decision. So something to keep in mind in terms of communicating clearly to your uh, prospective students that have applied and are wanting to come, but have a lot of concerns and need those questions answered directly. So a uh, great piece from uh, ICEF on this point, and uh, certainly uh, look forward to hearing some more uh, from how campuses are, are going to deal with these, a lot of health and safety issues for incoming students this, this fall. Now the final question is, uh, when we just finished talking about communicating, uh, how is communication changing with international students and how it should be moving to, what you should be moving to a model of communications. You, you look at what's happening in Australia and the question is what is Australia doing? And this is meant uh, to, as, as kind of a, a neutral question uh, to, in terms of how is, what is Australia doing to address uh, the, the the challenges they have faced with in the last year with not being able to bring in new students or returning students to campus. Uh, what have they done to, to uh, still maintain revenue streams uh, as much as they are driven by this? What, are, what is Australia doing in terms of what the federal government, national government is doing regarding reentry policies and how they're not really moving forward on things? 
uh, and that's uh, that's causing a lot of grief. I'm uh, talking to one one colleague who works uh, as kind of an agent aggregator, uh, has several uh, several several dozen uh, uh, agents that work exclusively exclusively with Australian universities, who are telling him that uh, they're they're being told don't expect to return to normal until October 2023 at the earliest. So. Uh, for for a country that is so heavily dependent on the international international student revenues on their campus, uh, it's really putting them in a, in dire straits. That uh, to have to potentially have 2020 students, new students not coming, 2021 students not coming, 2022 and into 2023, four potential years of not being able to have large cohorts of new international students come to campus is a challenging one for even the best and well, most well-endowed institutions uh, in terms of endowments and other resources to sustain them through struggling times. Uh, we've seen downsizing in Australia, uh, and certainly it's been much more significant there than it has been in the U.S. Uh, last count, we were looking at uh, about uh, 17,000 job losses for the 40 universities, averaging about 432 uh, job losses per campus. Uh, in the U.S., we were at about 144 jobs per campus out of the 40, uh, 4,000 4, 4, or so that we have here. So uh, they have been devastated there, and they're looking for options. And some of the some of the things that they're doing are are, are very creative, and you got to give the institutions credit for trying something because it doesn't sound like they're getting the help they need from their national government uh, in terms of the reopening of the country. Uh, so you look at what's being tri uh, tried. Uh, we, I know four articles that we're, I'll share with you here. One, a University World News piece on uh, how uh, Vietnam has uh, embarked on a pilot project with five Australian universities to offer online and blended degree courses in partnerships and partnership with Vietnamese universities. So this is kind of uh, a model that we've seen uh, U.S. colleges through the uh, the CIAE partnership uh, with U.S. schools, where there are, I think, eight or nine uh, U.S. colleges that have used CIAE CIE facilities overseas to have uh, in-person instruction uh, with uh, local faculty or for, for, for institutional faculty, U.S.-style classrooms uh, for students who couldn't get into the U.S. last fall. So this is a, very much a model. It's like the pop-up study hubs we've talked about. Australia have, has developed in several countries in Southeast Asia and, and East Asia. Uh, but v the, Vietnam is seeing this as a real, uh, an, a real opportunity uh, for their institutions that are partnering with Australian institutions. Uh, to offer those kinds of online uh, and blended in-person courses in Vietnam for their students. Uh, so this is, uh, Vietnam is one of the first countries in Asia to officially allow online delivery of foreign degrees uh, to students within their country. Uh, that's the transnational education thing piece that we've, we've talked uh, occasionally about here on the Roundup uh, that the British institutions have been doing very well for years. Uh, Australia certainly has gotten on, on board with that recently and um, as, and U.S. Has, as, as well behind in terms of how well we're doing that uh, in terms of delivery of our degrees overseas. Uh, very few schools are doing it well. So uh, that's so one, one area that uh, Australia is involving, uh, working to, um, to develop uh, pathways really. 
uh, for international students to still get their degrees, even if they can't physically be in country yet. Uh, may not be before they can even finish their degrees. Uh, so uh, the, the international ed sector is also pushing for um, that uh, international, international students should have vac uh, international student vaccination passports should be a realistic opportunity. Uh, education sector is pushing for that in Australia to allow uh, those students to travel if they have proof of vaccination. It uh, doesn't go into the specifics like I was, we were talking about with U.S. colleges and vaccination policies uh, and what those would require. But it's certainly uh, one way to do it uh, that this uh, it would permit and the CEO of the International Education uh, Association of Australia, Phil Honeywood, had indicated that this would permit international students to enter Australia if they can provide proof of having been vaccinated prior to boarding their flight. And the government's concern is that uh, the vaccine type, much like some of these U.S. schools that are requiring U.S.-only uh, vaccinations, even though that's not a CDC requirement yet uh, for, for visitors to the United States, uh, his concern is that the government uh, is concerned to ensure that the vaccine type meets their health approval protocols and that there is some independent verification of the student having actually been vaccinated. So that's the piece that... Uh, uh, it, it, that for the, for students in this scenario in Australia that have already been vaccinated, have the vaccine, international student vaccine passport, uh, they would still be required to undertake 14-day quarantine once once they arrive. So that's something that uh, is is under consideration in Australia. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, and universities are certainly hoping uh, vaccination delays in terms of how. Uh, vaccines are uh, that uh, there are university officials that are concerned that they hope the vaccine rollout will not affect a program designed for the safe return of international students in modest numbers because that has been something a safe corridor proposal uh, for the return of overseas students in New South Wales uh, would start with small student number of students up to 600 uh, and that uh, that the rollout of the vaccine is not going as quickly as perhaps many had hoped uh, in Australia, that uh, the, the anticipation would be that they would uh, do the full quarantine uh, for those that ha have already had the vaccine. So we'll see what, where, that, where that goes. That there's even, there are even universities that are, uh, are frankly, as the article, uh, this article from uh, The Age in Australia says, uh, universities hatch desperate plan to fly students in and quarantine them. So this is, hap this is p potentially happening, uh, that uh, a university-backed proposal where about a thousand foreign students would be flown into Melbourne every two to three weeks and placed in a special hotel lockdown arrangements and an ambitious bid to revive international education in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. So the incredible costs that were, are, would be involved in universities fly, paying to fly students in and then pay for their quarantine uh, time for two weeks. Some countries, that's up to $3,000 uh, for that period, that uh, for the quarantine period to, to take hold. This was done, uh, you may remember, we talked about how the Australian Tennis Open in, in Australia happened. Uh, in January, February, and that they had full, they had crowds in their stadium, tennis stadiums, uh, that uh, that they, these tennis players from around the world were let in 
and despite a strict cap on arrivals, uh, to uh, to to do some uh, and quarantine beforehand. So this is something that uh, we we university is certainly going to try whatever they can, and I don't blame them for it. That they are in, in desperate straits and really need answers. And we'll really see we'll see in the coming weeks and months if that actually if they actually get any movement on that. I, I should sure do for their sake because they've had some uh, rough months lately. So it's uh, it's as to what Australia is doing, it's uh, whatever they can, frankly, on the university side, uh, to uh, to chip away at the losses that they're uh, they've experienced in terms of student revenue uh, over the last uh, year. So we'll see where this one goes, and we'll certainly keep you posted here on the roundup. But as for now, that's all we have for this week, and we look forward to catching up with you next Wednesday. Have a wonderful weekend, and look forward to chatting soon. Cheers. <music>